A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film can reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton. And today, I'm joined by A Year in Film's own supervising producer and podcaster, Emily Gagné, and podcaster and creator of Malevolent, Harlan Guthrie. The things we see or shouldn't see as children continue to haunt us as adults. And it's a deep fear that makes for effective horror movies. That creeping dread that something terrible is just about to happen. Like the recent horror sensation Skinamarink, shout out to the wonderfully bizarre indie filmmaking scene in Edmonton. And like Skinamarink, atmosphere plays a huge role in both our movies today and in horror in general. Now, Harlan, you have a fiction horror podcast, which I love, called Malevolent. uh, And you know a thing or two about atmosphere and how it can creep. And you don't even... Even have any visuals at your disposal. You create everything with audio. So what to you does it take to make an effective spooky atmosphere? Oh man, so many good things. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I can say this now, but thank you for having me on the show. I do need to get that in. Thank somehow. you for coming. I really appreciate that. It could be cut, <laughs> but if it doesn't, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I mean, atmosphere is everything. I feel like there are really many different like schools of thought you know especially in the movies we're talking about today with the 80s you know atmosphere feels so much louder in a way you know when you look at like nightmare on elm street and all these things there's always going to be like an 80s guitar wailing away in the background where it's just like saxophone saxophone you know what i mean though like it's it's really (laughs) the atmosphere then is of the times i feel like though the movies that always get me and the things that I really enjoy when it comes to like really creepy atmosphere sometimes is even like a lack thereof because I feel like the quiet moments, those really like dark shots, the people who really know how to play with space, whether it be audi- auditory or visual or just even the writing sometimes where they just someone stops talking, that atmosphere that's, that's created feels so much beyond just the movie it almost kind of seeps into your living room or the or you know where you're watching in the theater and stuff like that so you know effective spooky atmosphere is really dependent on kind of that tone you're trying to set and i think you know both these movies do it very well in different ways when i'm doing it with audio only i find that playing with expectation uh, especially in a medium that's now starting to grow a little bit more and get a little bit more uh, popular, which is really exciting time to be in. You know, it's like the golden era of of movies in audio, <laughs> audio, which is really cool. But I find that really taking the time and and building with subtlety is kind of what has worked for me and what I personally get scared by. I'm totally with you. It's uh, I, I found what was interesting for me about Skinamarink, I'm going to go back because Canadian film, you got to promote it, um, was that nothing happens in that movie. But like for many people, mm-hmm. it either it's one of those movies that it either totally works for you or totally doesn't. That if you are into the vibe and you are like uh, enjoying just like nothing happening and just waiting for that thing to happen, it's, it's preying on that expectations, as you mentioned, Harlan. It is so effective and it works so much, that predatory fear. Um, I always this argument that I think horror is actually the hardest genre to pull off. And why so many people don't like horror is either they think it's stupid or it scares the crap out of them and that's not a feeling they enjoy. It's only us weird, spooky people are like, yes, scare me, I want it. But I think horror is the worst because you are trying to instill an actual sense of fear and personal threat without actually personally threatening people when they are at their safest. They're in like, they're in their homes, they're in a movie theater surrounded by other people, eating comfort food, popcorn and whatnot. Like, like it's it's an extremely comfortable environment that you are then making unsafe through fiction. I'm just fascinated by oh, that. Oh, it's ability. so difficult. And I'm right there with you. You know, I used to work at Blockbuster in like the you know the early 2000s. <laughs> so I would constantly be, you know, walking through the aisles being like, "Oh, try this and try this and try this." And I so my counter argument or not argument, but my counterpoint to people who say they don't like horror is I always say, "I don't think you found the right horror." Because to me, yeah. a lot of people autocomplete oh horror with like you know a hostel or, or some some like gory kind of that's to me the scariest movies are the ones that really creep in that you don't even realize like you know no country for old men or something like that where you don't realize how terrifying the prospect of the film you're seeing is until you're halfway through and i think generally that feeling once it once it clicks with the viewer is exactly the same kind of point that you're making it's like it really has to get to you to make that 
connection to feel like, oh, okay, I get it now. This is that feeling they're trying to invoke, and it's amazing. There's a genre that I don't think I've invented it, the, like the name of it. I'm sure someone else calls it this, but I call it quiet horror. Mm. And I think it's very prevalent in like, especially UK and Canadian film, right? Because yeah. we don't, we don't like, I mean, some Canadian film is off the freaking wall. And like, you look at The Descent, which is a UK oh, film yeah. also off the wall. But like, you look at um, like traditional ghost stories and urban legends. The Changeling is one that I always point to of being like that. Oh. That's quiet horror. Insidious, like some of the James Wan stuff definitely. Definitely sits in that same sort of ca- uh, category. Uh, Lake Mungo, which is Australian, also that quiet horror. I, I think that stuff is, it, that's the stuff that wakes me up at night. It's not the like someone just had their hamstring clipped. You know? 100%. 100%. I totally, totally agree. It's funny you mentioned changing because changing actually reminded me certain aspects for some reason of Pin. I know we're not there yet, but I will bring it up when we get there. But I just, it was interesting because there were certain connections that I was kind of like, oh. And I love the changeling. Again, that was one of my like staples. Oh, yeah. That, I mean, especially with with you know George C. Scott, right? Yeah, yep. uh, the piano player. I oh, I love. I mean, you've listened to Malevolent. I love a piano player protagonist. And I would not <laughs> you be. Don't say. I would not be surprised <laughs> if subconsciously I was influenced a lot by Changeling with with malevolent because I always love that connection. You got a dead child, someone coping you with grief, do it. you know, I mean, you got, oh, you shit. got, yeah, wait, hold on. Go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think okay, I might have royalties to someone. We're breaking things down. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into our first film, which, okay, here is your, um, spoiler alert and, uh, your content warning. Uh, today's film deals with, unfortunately, uh, the murder of a child. It happens on screen, even though it happens in a ghostly way. So if this is not for you, we completely understand. Okay, so we have discussed other movies on this podcast where you have to ask yourself, who is this for? Now, Lady in White definitely falls into that category. The urban legend of the Lady in White stuck with filmmaker Frank LaLoja since his childhood, and it's a movie that feels like it could be very accessible for young teens and kids interested in horror, but there's also some stuff that is very dark and very adult. Okay, that having been said, Harlan, did this one stick with you? Did you have anything lingering here? Yeah, I mean, there there were definitely some moments in it that uh, took me aback, you know, that really sort of surprised me. First off, the whole movie's framed. It's a flashback, which is interesting. You know, it starts off with this guy kind of coming up to this gravestone, this beautiful shot, by the way. I don't know where that was, Quebec maybe or something, but there's this oh, gorgeous, yeah. like, I remember being like, wow, that's a beautiful shot. You have this this river in the background. It's like, it's all upstate New York. That's where he's oh, that, from. All of this was? is out. Yeah, I thought yeah, I didn't know if they did like a smash cut because I saw the New York panning and then I thought maybe they'd go somewhere else. But it was, it was gorgeous, regardless. <laughs> yeah. so it's framed in that. But basically, this I guess he's nine year old kid. Uh, you know, is this small town, very kind of cringingly cliche. I would argue, like <laughs> to the point where it's like, oh, the mom and pop shop, and hey, get off my lawn. But it's all like with this nice happy music. Anyway, he witnesses this atrocious crime that is a spiritual reflection of the crime that happened uh, many years earlier, many years earlier, after he gets locked in the closet at his uh, school uh, uh, with a a bad prank that goes south on Halloween night. So 10 o'clock strikes, he sees this ghost be brutally murdered by this uh, unseen figure. And then I guess the the person who did that murder many years earlier comes back that same night to like collect a piece of evidence that happened to be mistaken. And, and, and uh, the nine-year-old boy, our protagonist, uh, is is hurt. You know, he, he we kind of think he dies, uh, but he wakes up the next day. And, and basically what follows is a series of ghostly encounters that unravels the mystery of what happened that night and how it affects his current life. I think that's probably the... The, the spoilery and vaguest explanation I can give of the whole thing. And uh, it culminates in sort of a, a air quote twist that, <laughs> that someone close to the boy uh, ended up doing it, which, you know, is kind of the way these things go. But did it stick with me was your question. It stuck with me. There's a few things as a parent. You know, I have a six-year-old kid that definitely oh, yeah, you get it. got to me. Yeah, I mean, you know, anytime a child pleads for their life and screams, you know, whether it be uh, the hokiest movie or the most serious pick, uh, it always kind of makes me sweat a little. You know what I mean? It just kind of curls my toes because it's a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. And I think some of the themes in this and some of the presentation of some of the material was really effective. There's shots of like the lady in white standing outside uh, the main character Frank's window once or twice, you know, during the movie that are really creepy and stuff like that. I think those elements definitely stuck with me, sort of the grander themes of what they're trying to accomplish. So yeah, I mean, in that way, I think it was really, really cool. 
Um, I have other thoughts, but that's where I'm at with the stick with it. <laughs> it is it is very much uh, an independent film. We should be very clear here. We're going to talk into how, about how it was funded in a moment, which is absolutely fascinating. It may be the only movie that was ever funded this way. Frank LaLoja is a man that loves movies. And you can tell how much he loves movies. And I feel like that love is definitely coming through this film. I do want to put the caveat through that sometimes when you're looking at movies modernly that have just been like recently restored and they have optical effects, those don't translate well into HD. And so they would look better on a grainy film. And I think that infor- this is one of the casualties of that is I think the ghost would look way better if it wasn't in HD, in HD unfortunately, or 4K. Oh, 100%. Uh, yeah, they have yeah. those issues, you know, that like Peter Jackson goes back and tries to fix or whatever. It's like the same thing with when she goes crazy and the, the Gladriel starts going, whoa, they have that like terrible <laughs> fading effect. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know, but that stuff kind of, like, is eerie in its own way. Like, I I don't know. I'm just going to out myself. I did watch this for the first time, like, last year, very stoned, (laughs) and I was creeped the hell out because it was kind of trippy, you know? Especially that scene when you'd kind of think the boy is dying, and he goes into this, like, other realm, and he's flying, and you're kind of like, what? What is happening? Um, And it feels very true to like a child's imagination of like how weird and warped and and nonsensical it would be. I find it kind of chilling in that the effects in in a weird, like nostalgic way. I totally agree. Like, I don't think I don't think any part of uh, the effects uh, pulled back for me. Like, I think all of them, even the ones that, yeah, you could see the outlining, you know, there's some cheesy shots, but none of them took me out of what it was trying to do. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I think it's one of those cases where if you're in for the ride, you kind of know what's coming, which is nice. Nothing, you know, it's not like a horror movie where everything depends on the reveal of the monster and everything so far has been perfectly paced. And then you see the monster and it looks like a crap of sack and you're like, oh my God, this is not scary anymore. It was, you know, it, it was seamless throughout all of these kind of little things that it just kind of felt of the world, which was nice. Well, let's talk about the yeah. building of that atmosphere and because that's kind of the theme of the episode as well as like the the invention of this. So uh, I mentioned earlier that he was inspired by an actual uh, urban legend sort of thing and also who this movie is for because I'm like, I have a nine-year-old and I'm like, this is something that I feel would be good gateway horror. Like, you know, you, you we, we don't mm-hmm. have a lot of those now for kids. Uh, interestingly enough, this is the same distributor as uh, the horror film that I think very much is for kids called the gate uh, and the gate Two, which another amazing Canadian film if people haven't seen it. Um, but like, it's got a very interesting tone to it where I'm like a kid could kind of watch this, but there's some real, real dark stuff here. So it just depends on how much you want to explain to them. There's even like, there's racial tension stuff. Well, that was what got me out. That was like, blew me out of the water. I was like, Whoa, they, they like, there's a hard, hard switch a little bit in the movie. And I'm glad I, cause I wasn't sure at that point how they were going to frame it. Right. Like, like there's, and you never know. Like, sometimes they're just, oh, here, here's of the time we're writing for the 60s because obviously this is like an 80s movie that's a flashback. That totally took me off guard. And so fair warning to anybody. There is a reason for some of the things that are said about 10 or 15 minutes into the movie. But at that time, I was like, oh, wow, is this going to be like kind of a, a thing I don't really want to get into, you know? There's some stuff contextually always you have to talk about if you're showing it to your kids. You know, uh, this for sure, obviously, the racial stuff is extremely complicated. And uh, I don't know if it's handled particularly well. This movie goes in really difficult places. But I mean, a lot of stuff that you're looking at, especially from the 80s, it's very common for them to use homophobic slurs. Yeah way more common to use words that we do not use anymore. And they require framing if you're showing them to a younger person being like, this is what this word means. We do not use this word. It's a very powerful word. But even with stuff like that, I'm like, this all feels like stuff I could have a conversation with my small person with. Uh, with. We'll just watch this at two o'clock in the afternoon on a Sunday so we have time. Yeah. 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 There was a few. Yeah. I don't know, though. Like, I, I feel like it does come as a bit of a surprise. Like if you were a, a child of color, if you were, if you were a parent of a, a child of color, like this would be like kind of an intense movie to watch in that way, because we do see like, spoiler alert, we do see like a, a black man and a black woman get shot by I a mean, white that's woman. that's the thing, and, right? Like it was yeah. really messed up. It's brutal. Yeah. I just think like it, it it's I had seen this before, but I didn't remember how brutal it was. And I was like, I think I was mo- almost more, most disturbed by that part in the movie because it felt so real. 100%. And not just that it was real. I had to ask myself, and, and I, and I spoiler, there's a lot of good about this movie. Overall, I would say I didn't thoroughly enjoy it. And I'll explain why after. But I thought that was really interesting because at that point, 
we have this this narrative, this frame, which is horrific. You know, this there's uh, like eleven or fifteen or something children that have died in the last ten years, which is almost treated as an afterthought. It doesn't introduce the movie. It's like comes out in a piece of paper after the boy is you know strangled to near death, and it's just like, oh, by the way, did you know all these kids have gone missing? But then you have this B plot of these extreme racial tensions who the 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 black janitor is the one who's blamed for the potential murder of our protagonist he goes to you know uh i guess jail while he's on trial and the town kind of turns against him and then he gets out and one of the mothers of the the children who had died again i'm, I'm i think it was like years ago um just executes him in the back of the car yeah. she pulls out a gun and she shoots him in the head and i was like and here's where i thought it was a very interesting choice because you know, th- there's no consequences for that woman. Like she just gets pulled yep. off. There's no framing mm-hmm. of it to be like, and he, so I've introduced this racial tension and here's how I, as the filmmaker are showing that it's wrong. Basically they're like, here's something that happened. And, and there's value in that too, because sometimes there's just terrible shit that happens. And I think if the filmmaker was trying to be like, look, this is the, the horrible shit that exists in the world. Okay. Successful. I felt really bad after that. But to me, it felt almost worse than the A plot, you know, because this is <laughs> yeah. this is like an active yeah. hate crime that just kind of gets really quickly swept off. And let, now let's go back to the A plot. It was very interesting to see. It's wild, eh? Yeah. yeah. It's definitely like uh, someone who has chosen their priorities of what the they want it to be about. Does that moment need to be there? Probably not. Uh, well, and that's it. Like all, and yeah. you know, all the children that were murdered were all white kids too. You know, like it's all, like it's very interesting. And part of me thought until the end of the movie, I was kind of like, okay, well maybe this is really clever. And maybe what it's trying to do is show a light on the fact that we don't care about you know, this violent act towards this poor black man. And really, maybe it's going to have this kind of revelation where it's like, see, the fact that we care more about these missing kids or these murdered kids and not care about this man who just got shot is part of it. I don't know if it did that, though. I don't know if it was trying for that. I think I gave it too much I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the moments. And I think that's the thing that lots of people forget that that happens, too, right? Everybody does focus on the fact it's a ghost story. When this movie is written about currently, uh, people just talk about how much they love it as a ghost story. They never bring that part up. In fact, I think we might be one of the few people to actually bring that part up. Which is kind of, case in point, as how it's fucked up, right? Like, like here's this horrific act in the movie, and it is so hidden in a way that that we and and again like until you mentioned it honestly because i remember watching the movie and being like i was terrible and i almost forgot about it <laughs> like because because it, it's just such a blink and a flash and like and then you're so because also the ending we'll get get into it when he's attacked by you know a very close friend of the family yeah. uh played by len Carew of all people who was just floating around canada yeah. at that time uh the original sweeney todd from broadway himself oh, cool. if people uh do not know um he uh i mean he's great and he's he's such an incredible high-end actor i mean the, the caliber of actor they have in this is really helps sell it as well and i think that it just you're so taken by just how awful that last bit is and just how intense and manic that last bit is that it just the rest of it just sort of floats away which it shouldn't I agree but this a bunch of bananas stuff happens and then you kind of skip to the next thing and you're like oh yeah remember that bananas thing that happened like two minutes ago where did that go uh is very much a Frank LaLoja thing uh have either of you seen Fear No Evil which is his first film no. Mm-mm. He was making movies with his cousin, Charles Alodia, who also a fascinating human being. We're going to get into him. Um, but he had his first movie, was independently financed. And then well, they took it to distribution first, and it got taken out of their hands by the distributor. The distributor basically totally reworked it and did a bunch of stuff of what they thought would make it sellable. It's full of just stuff. Like, just, like, some of the weirdest, wildest, most random things that are going to happen. There's death by uh, dodgeball. <laughs> There's one of the most, like, intense homoerotic shower <laughs> scenes I've ever seen. Like, it it just gets, there's, like, a whole section where, like, there's an actual castle in upstate New York that they film at that they, like, set on fire at the end. Like, it's just, it's, uh, yeah, it's a battle between good and evil, between uh, Satan's reincarnate, who is now a high schooler, and then two angels who have been reincarnated 
reincarnated to stop him, one who's an older woman, one who's a younger woman. Sounds like the perfect movie. <laughs> it's, it's, it's bizarre and great. But again, like, it's just like a bunch of stuff happening. And he says that one got taken away from them. They made no money on it because of this, the, the deal they signed with the distributor who basically, that movie made a lot of money, especially overseas, but the distributor took all of it. So they had, we're kind of starting from scratch, but they got burned on that one. So that's why they they completely independently funded this one. So this is exactly the movie he wanted to make, but it's still full of a bunch of absolutely wild yeah. stuff. I think that's a great way to say it too, because I that's I made a note of my for myself that it felt like a bunch of piecemeal ideas, like kind of just a bunch of things. And don't get me wrong, because I do think it's a coherent story, more or less, uh, yeah. aside for some plot points and stuff like that, or plot holes, I should say. Um, but it did feel like kind of disjointed at times. Tonally, this movie was very difficult to understand exactly, going to your first point, like who it's for. Tonally, this movie was very difficult to to parse out exactly what he wanted. Yeah, yeah. It feels a bit like this was the movie he was waiting to make. Like it, it's based on his childhood. Like Frankie is the name of the main character, clearly based off of Frank himself, like clearly based off his kind of family and his upbringing. And I feel like it's really hard when you're, when you're basing a story off of your childhood to not include all of these details. Um, but in a way, sometimes like I like how detailed the scenes are with like the family like it feel like it you do feel for them but it's also like do we really need to spend this much time with the grandpa smoking I don't know I mean that that was such my takeaway because like th- there's really weird scenes you know where it's just like and, and I mean, man, this felt like a mashup of like Wonder Years slash E.T. slash like, you know, I almost I mean, there is a voiceover, which also just kind of goes away at the end. But anyway, don't forget Stand By Me. This is definitely oh, got yeah. Stand, by, Stand me by Me. But like, you know, with like especially the beginning, you got this like, you know, upbeat kind of frilly fun music and they're biking through town and leaves are rustling by. And there's like a sequence with the nuns all like hitting the boys. And it felt so like full of exactly that like like frank you know was like oh i want to i want to just get that perfect childhood and kind of articulate it here and it's interesting because all of the pieces were there and 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 nothing about it i could singularly say well that's wrong but for some reason it felt off you know what i mean it, something about it felt and and that's not to say it wasn't interesting or fun especially that opening you know suite where you see all the life of the family and the mud and it gets stuck in the concrete but something about it felt kind of disconnected I don't really know what I'm curious if either of you felt that as well because something it almost felt like insincere maybe I don't know a little trying too hard like there's the scene between the dad and the and the friend Phil where they're like talking about their their childhood and how Phil was taken in by uh, this the dad's family because his parents died and all this stuff that like I guess that conversation does kind of pay off in the end because of who we find out is is doing these crimes but it it's just like I was like do I need this much information do do I need to know all of this stuff I also did you guys find that like I felt like there was a lot of red herrings that weren't just the lady in white herself. I felt like I was like, I didn't trust the brother. I didn't trust the dad. I didn't trust anybody because they were like, everybody was making weird comments and having weird interactions with each other that like immediately the brother like falls on, on Frankie at the beginning. And I was like, is he the killer? Like, I, do you know what I mean? And the dad is suspicious. Like everybody's suspicious, but I don't know if that was the intention of Frank's. Like, I, I don't know. I agree. The motivations felt muddy at times. Like there's a point where the protagonist finds the thing that the killer was looking for. It's a, it's a signet ring. It's a class ring. Yeah. And the, the boy picks it up and takes it back to his house. And then the older brother finds it and like takes it. And then when the younger brother thinks he misplaced it, rather than be like, oh, I had it or whatever. He's like, oh yeah, I don't, I don't know what happened with that. But for no real reason, I guess he just, he wanted to investigate it himself, which he ends up doing, you know, like the older brother finds out who the signet ring belongs to and uncovers the fact that yes, it was the family best friend, the father's best friend from childhood, which, and again, going back to your point, expertly acted. I thought that was the other creepiest part of the movie. When you find out who the, who the killer is, you know, he's like, this really jovial, like, oh, you know, take another shot and blah, 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 because they're doing archery. And then he's outside the car. And he, it's like this Jekyll Hyde moment where he's like really creepy. And he's just like, let me in. And it was it it was very, very 
great. And I think, again, to your first point, I think the acting on ninety percent of this is top notch. You know what I mean? And and very f- and very uh, fitting. But you know why the kid took the ring? Why he didn't? share it why he didn't work on it, it the motivations were, were muddy for sure i, I think it's because kids are stupid because <laughs> like, they, they, they but it's the thing they don't understand the gravitas of certain things right they don't understand like how big a deal something is and so this movie actually reminds me a lot of another film that we've talked about in the podcast previously uh toby hooper's invaders from mars uh which some people find very effective and some people do not i am in the do not and we're finding this in in a lot of films where people have like a dream project it's something they've always wanted to do uh toby hooper always wanted to remake Invaders from Mars and he makes it from a child's point of view so like a lot of the framing is and the filming is done like as if it's you're a child looking up at the adult figures and like until you kind of twig into oh that's what he's doing it can be like why is this shot so weird um this feels like it has a lot of that he is really really trying to capture that feeling when you are spooked out when you're a kid but you are old enough that you want to be independent and figure it out for yourself. And I think that's what he's trying to capture. And I think us as adults watching it would go, well, why is he doing that? Because that's dumb, which is why it makes me think there is very much an intention for kids to watch this because I think it's a kid's point of view that would get it. And I actually think he nails that. I think you're right. And honestly, there's a few scenes which are really funny. Uh, every t- Pretty much every time anyone enters a forest in this, it's uh, what we were dubbing while my wife and I were watching it is the Princess Bride Forest because it's like <laughs> yes. filled with smoke and like, which, but you know, to your point, that's a very kid way to view the spooky forest and, you know, ha- have that kind of feeling like everything is kind of oppressive and surrounding you. And yeah, I, I think you're totally right in in that context. I think that absolutely tracks. I think it's, that B-plot stuff of, like, the execution of an innocent man. That makes it really well, that, and, and I think yeah. that's kind of what I what I feel with the mishmash of ideas is more so, like, you got, okay, cool. And I don't know. I, I don't know the context of, you know, maybe he wrote it and it was only 85 pages. And he was like, well, let me throw in <laughs> this or something. Who knows? <laughs> Let's get into the actual making of because this is kind of fascinating. So I mentioned what happened uh, with Fear No Evil. It got taken away from them. So it took them three years to raise money to make this film, which is the movie that they really wanted to make. And uh, so how they did it. So his his cousin, Charles Lelogia, fascinating human being. Uh, he was apparently a, a youth protege stockbroker. Like he started trading stocks when he was 12 and then became this like Wall Street whiz kid. And like he wrote books about this. Like, he just was this incredible stock trader. So uh, he decided he wanted, like, he was a, also a whim guy. And so he just bought a bunch of racehorses that all apparently did extremely well. Like, he just became a racehorse guy. So he had all this extra money. He's like, you know what? I want to be in the movie business. Who do I know who also wants to be in the movie business? And his cousin Frank did. Very confusing when you read interviews. His brother is also named Frank. So there's two Frank Lologas oh, wow. in doing <laughs> interviews. So it gets a little complicated sometimes. So they have to, like, bracket cousin, bracket brother bracket, right? Like it gets a little complicated. Anyway, so how they decided they were going to raise money for this is that they create, he changed the name of his trading company that already had a, like a ticker on the New York Stock Exchange. They changed it to New Sky Communications, which apparently you can do. You can just change the name of, I don't know if you can do it now, but back in the 80s, apparently you could. And they were selling shares in this film as penny stocks, which if people are familiar with it, this is the whole Wolf of Wall Street penny stock thing. So basically a penny stock is, it's any stock that is under $10. So they were sharing this basically, or they were sending this out for, I think, like a dime a share. And it took them three years and they had brokers all over the country selling this stock of like people like, do you want to own part of a movie? Here you go. And then they, and as far as I know, this is the only time this has ever happened. It seems like there'd be rules against this now. It's also one of the first like really large nationwide versions of crowdfunding, which is also really fascinating because we don't get the internet for like another, what, 10 years after this. So that's a whole other thing. They were able to recoup all of their money and everything just in the foreign sales for distribution. So before they even started, they had broken even. And then they made a bunch of money on this. And then they did make one more film called Mother, but that was within the Hollywood system. And again, it's another movie that seems like it was taken away from him and recut. And just anytime he worked with anyone who wasn't family, they just didn't get what he was doing. It just kind of got massacred and was never his vision. But like, what a creative way to, and if you have the resource to do it and the understanding of how to do it, to raise money for your movie, you know? And it seems like he was a bit of a local hero for it. Like, he's really trying to showcase his hometown in upstate New York, which I think he's doing that. Absolutely. I mean, the town felt like a character, you know? Yeah. 
I also love the fact that, like, apparently he made, like, a video for all the kids in town who had questions about uh, filmmaking. Like, he, like I watched some of the video, and he's, like, so cute in it, actually. Uh, and he's, like, making jokes about how he, like, wants to save money, and he doesn't have a nice car like the other people on the post-production lot because <laughs> he's trying to save money. And I also read that, like, he, like, storyboarded literally every single scene because he really wanted to make sure they didn't go over budget, and they made this movie happen. And I, I like... That commitment, I think, does come through on the screen. Even though it's a muddied story, it feels like it's coming from a genuine place. Do you know what I mean? Like, it feels like this is a filmmaker that really wanted to make this film as crazy, as weird as it is. And there's a ton of love. Yeah, I I totally hear that. And I feel that, too. I think you're absolutely right. It is absolutely a filmmaker who loves this movie. And, I mean, it's not a bad thing, for sure. And the way it's, you know, made, I think, is really important. And I I think the vision that's told is really interesting and really cool. Uh, I I think that, to me, the downside is, like, here's a filmmaker who really loves this movie, who really wants to see it. And, you know... I think it succeeds at everything it tried to do, you know, in terms of like, like, I don't think there's a scene in it that even if it was unnecessary, maybe, but I don't think there was a scene in it where I didn't understand what it was trying to accomplish. But going back to that piecemeal feel, it did just, it just felt like even though each scene kind of accomplished its thing together, back to back, they felt interesting choices at times you know (laughs) yeah it's missing it's missing a bit of that flow well let's flow into our next film which uh i think certainly succeeds in exactly what it sets out to do is that a good thing let's find out it's pin and that's coming up after the break Hey, Cam. Uh, caveat before we start. Uh, I appear in some Hollywood Suite original content, and you are one of the writers and producers of a lot of that content, and you appear in them as well. Uh, shows like A to Z and the Year in Film TV series, but I'm really proud of being a part of them because I feel that, like this podcast, uh, knowing more about the context of the movies we love really enriches the enjoyment of those movies. I think it's also a, a great reminder that like film is such an unusual medium where so many artists are involved. I think you're somebody who loves to dig into producers uh, and like how they affect things you know a producer was obsessed with an actor and that's why they're in X or Y how one director made a pillow fort to get away from his producer when he was throwing tantrums sure Uh, John Peters really wanted to see a giant mechanical spider on screen these are all like important points (laughs) of film history that that get lost because frankly they're not the front facing people exactly and I think all of the Hollywood Suite original content brings these stories that a lot of people haven't heard before to the forefront. And not only are they going to learn about the movies they already love, they'll probably find a bunch of new favorites. And they'll be guided by reliable film experts and thorough, well-curated interviews and behind-the-scenes footage. And you can find out more about Hollywood Suite original programming at hollywoodsuite.ca. And now, back to the show. As a proud Canadian film lover, I am one of the first people to list off a number of must-see Canadian features for the general public. Though I would be very careful who I recommend Pin to, it's a movie that succeeds at what it intends to do spectacularly, which is creep you the hell out. It's based on a novel by Andrew Niederman, a guy who took over writing B.C. Andrews novels when she retired, which makes all the sense of the world when you watch it, and is put over the edge from oddity to solid horror by great performances all around, including from an anatomically correct now, Emily, had you seen this one before? Have you heard of it? It's it's pretty notorious in film circles. I had heard of it. So the first time I heard about it was in high school. Weirdly, my English teacher described the plot to us. I don't remember <laughs> why, but I was like, I, okay. I was, I yeah, I know. On reflection, weird. Um, but I I was immediately like, I got to see this movie. But I was scared by the even just the description of it. I was like terrified. So I didn't watch it for years. I watched like a clip of it one night with a friend who was also in my class and heard the it just being described and uh we screamed we just saw pins sitting at the dinner table and we screamed and left the room and we didn't watch it so this was my first time watching it after this like lead up of like almost uh 20 years of me wondering how scary this movie was going to be um so yes I had heard about it and I was I was waiting for the right moment so I'm so glad that we got to do it uh here but basically this movie this movie is like the best V.C. Andrew story uh, never written, which is interesting because, of course, the the writer of the novel did end up being the ghostwriter for V.C. Andrews going forward. But basically, the plot is this. 
There's a brother and sister, Leon and Ursula, and they're raised by this dad who is a doctor and he teaches them sort of life lessons, including about the birds and the bees with this doll that they call Pin after Pinocchio. And he is anatomically correct, as you said. They're raised with this this doll that the, the dad uses ventriloquism to speak to them through Pin. And Leon thinks this is real. And he continues to think it's real into adulthood. Ursula realizes that this is a trick, moves on, becomes a normal human. But Leon takes on Pin as his best friend for life. And he will use Pin to help him maintain the life that he wants to maintain at any cost. Does that sound like a good description of that sounds about right. Yeah, here's your uh, your content warning for this one. There's incest. There's murder. It's uh, and it's implied incest, but it's definitely that's a big part of the ick factor. It's oh God, uh, yeah. it's pretty graphic, unfortunately. So, uh, was this now? This was one you hadn't seen either, Harlan. So, how was your first entry into this one? Honestly, I loved it. I I yeah. the more I thought about it afterwards, I. First off, we talk about like subtlety and and I mean really this movie doesn't doesn't really play down to its audience. It it doesn't it doesn't overexplain. It doesn't treat the audience like they're idiots, which is always my first like modifier for a movie to be like, okay, if this is teaching me everything like and and we talk about the ventri- ventriloquism bit, right? Right off the bat, you know, the, you have the two kids sitting in front of this model and the father who's in the corner is projecting his voice. If I wore clothes, then no one could see inside me and I wouldn't be any good for teaching anymore. And and we know as adults what he's doing, kind of. At first, you're like, oh, yeah, well, if you don't know what the tone of the movie is, you're like, what the hell's going on? You know, is this thing talking? What's going on? Because it sounds like it. But, you know, it's just never it's never really full out explained. Like, I'm using ventriloquism. You know, they could easily have cut in a scene right afterwards. Like, well, I'm using ventriloquism to tell the kids. That they don't do any of that, which I, <laughs> yeah. I so love. I just just let the movie kind of do its thing. And the performances of the dad, Terry O'Quinn and, Terry and David O'Quinn, Hewlett. Yeah. I mean, David Hewlett kills it. Um, he's so young in it. I honestly didn't recognize him at first. I was like, is that, oh, that's like just because of how youthful he is in it. But. Man, I loved the movie. I thought that the tone was awesome. I thought the whole vibe of it was so unsettling and creepy. And the way the brother would just kind of fly off the handle when anyone mentioned Pin was so, I guess, refreshing. Because, because I, I mean, I couldn't think of a comparative where the characters surrounding the brother would justify his anger in the way that they did in a way that still made it made sense. You know what I mean? Like other movies might try to pull off yeah. something like that, you know, like a dead silence puppet movie. And you're like, nah, you're, you're nuts. That's not, that, that's crazy or whatever. But he plays it in such a way that when the sister is like, okay, you, you buy it, you totally get it. You're like, you sympathize with her to be like, I, I would also have a tough time not placating this guy because he seems so normal outside of that or so like peaceful and like tranquil outside of these really odd altercations. Even some of the things he does in the movie where he's just like, oh, you know, let me help you out with that and let me do this. And like, they seem very normal and, and kind for the most part. And then it starts getting a little weird, but I loved it. I loved it is the overall theme. I'm so glad. It is, uh, what I think what fascinates me with this atmospherically is all of this basically happens during the day and it's brightly lit and like it, and yet they still have this like impending sense of creeping dread because you genuinely do not know where this movie is well, going. That's it. It's I was so, so weird. <laughs> I, I, I get a real, you know, th- th- most of the movies nowadays, not most, but there's a lot of movies nowadays that, that kind of are the generic ones that you're like, okay, I kind of get what it's going to do. And I remember turning to my wife through this movie and being like, I genuinely have no idea where this thing's going to end. Like, I, and and it's also a framing movie. It's also a flashback yeah. movie, which is interesting too. Yeah. Okay. How do we feel about the flashback? Do we feel the flashback gives away too much? Do we need the flashback, or would you prefer just end on that incredibly unsettling image at the very last moment? Yeah. To me, I didn't. I mean, it it doesn't detract in my opinion. It it's to me, it feels like one of those you know studio interference things where they're like, well, we need something at the stop to to get a real hook into people, and we need we want to start them off with a scare, you know, like because it it, <laughs> it doesn't really add anything, and it it to me it only muddies the tone. It would have it would have felt better for me if it just played out normally, like a like a bizarre story. I mean, if you wanted to add that kid, because it starts off with a bunch of kids looking at a creepy house and going, oh, there's a man sitting at the window, and they crawl up to the window and they look, and then you hear a voice. But it's even the way it's shot is kind of muddy. You don't really know what's going on. You're kind of like, 
wait, does, was the thing, you know, anyway. Yeah. Was this an afterthought? Did you guys just tack this on? Yeah. yeah. Probably would have been better as an end spook than a first spook, but that's just, you know, it didn't. Oh, didn't but I love the ending. I love I the ending yeah. that, like, that when she's like, I miss, or he says, I miss him a great deal. So do I. Like, that yeah. to me, it was the icing on the cake. Like, I knew that it was going to end like that, but it was even better when it played out. And I, I, you know, talking about like leaving room for surprise, like I like that there's the scene, um, we're really getting into spoilers, but there's a scene where the, the, the sister comes in with the axe right at the end and we don't see what happens. We're just left to see the last bit play out. So like until the last moment, you're like, is it like, is Pin dead or is Leon dead? What's happening? Yeah. And I love that. You're, you're kept hanging on the edge of your seat until the end of the movie. And it, the payoff is, is so sweet and so twist. No, you're so right. Yeah. It's really, and that I think is the vibe, like, you know, horror is such a broad category, but I would firmly put this into like the unsettling category of horror because it's not that it's, you know, there's no jumps, there's no real, you know, um, things in it that, that make you go, Oh my God. Oh my God. It's just kind of like, but at the end, you know, there's a real like, oof, like, and, and you know, talking about the incest stuff, you know, it's such a, like a gut punch kind of like a, Oh, that that's such a gross kind of feeling, which I think this movie does really well. It's a deeply yucky, yucky movie. And I, Sandor Stern, who uh, wrote and directed this film. So he's a name that a lot of people won't recognize, but he does have a big place in film history in that he wrote the the uh, film version of the Amityville Horror. Oh, yeah. That's his claim to fame. Um, so that obviously is another like quiet horror film, extremely effective, made a ton of money. Um, and I think a lot of those qualities kind of happen here. He obviously is a very big fan of uh, Andrew Niederman. The two of them um, collaborated on a bunch of other things, including another film about it, which is uh, based on a book of his, which is I, I, the story itself is fascinating. The movie itself is very movie of the week. Mm. Like it's very Canadian movie of the week, but it's got a very standard premise of like um, a woman sees her dead brother, but the guy claims he's not her dead brother. And they find out that there's an organization that's like replacing people's memories in, in other bodies. But where the twist happens that I've never seen before is that she and her husband who are investigating this both die, get replaced by other people. And then they continue f- the mystery, Ooh. finding out there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Which I was like, that's a twist. But yeah, they. so he really seems to be uh, fascinated and interested in the works of Andrew Niederman, which I get. But I think his stuff is very clean. It's very specific. He does a lot of television stuff, as a lot of people working in Canada were at the time. And you ha- almost do have like a movie of the week television quality to this mm-hmm. that... I actually think helps the tone Mm -hmm. because I think it, again, it lulls you into this like false sense of this is, this is okay. This is normal. It's not going to go somewhere real bad. And and I think you just nailed exactly why uh, I put this kind of similarly to Changeling because the Changeling has that same HBO home box office kind of vibe at the time. Changeling uh, has this kind of, you don't realize how terrifying it's going to get because of the way it's presented. You know, it's got a slightly bigger budget, I would imagine, because it's got George Scott in it. Yeah. But like, uh, the, the the oh, he was dude at that point. He was really just doing anything for anything. But you know what I mean? <laughs> but but what, the comparative between the Changeling and Pin, I mentioned before this. I was like, they felt the same, and I think that's why. I think because they lull you in with this sense of like, ah, this is just going to be like a straight to DVD type vibe, and they, and ironically, I don't. I I think a bigger budget would have hurt pin because i think what what yeah. works so well is the fact that it feels like that because i think if they had done this big production and made it feel you know it wouldn't have been as big a payoff you would have been like oh well that you know i was expecting so much more you know yeah. this movie does also seriously tone down the book the book has a lot more even though the, the violence isn't ramped up but the sex element is significantly more present it's much more icky it delves much more into um uh leon's sexual dysfunction and like really how messed up he actually is like you see him try to have relationships and they just go completely sideways um people who have reviewed the book i haven't read the book but uh people who have reviewed the book who normally are like horror reviewers are like this thing is 
is toxic. Do not touch it with a 10-foot pole. Like, it is, it's really kind of gross. And so people who aren't familiar with V.C. Andrews, she kind of built her name on these, like, incestuous horror. Mm -hmm. Emily, I know that you are very familiar with the works (laughs) of V.C. Andrews. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, The Flowers in the Attic is, like, probably her most famous uh, novel. And that is just, that is incest, the movie, you know? Um, And I literally... Leon and, and Ursula, the, the blondness of them, it reminded me so much of uh, Kathy and Chris, I think, are their names in, in Flowers in the Attic. And I was like, this is Flowers in the Attic, except they're not trapped in the attic. They're just in this like big house uh, on the side of uh, a lake or whatever. Like it just it's it's all very sexually weird, like incest between brother and sister, incest between like father, daughter, like all of that stuff. But like somehow that stuff is like weirdly like entrancing. Like I know as a kid, like I was like fascinated by V.C. Andrews. And to this day, I will still kind of read these books and feel a bit weird about it. But I can't look away. Like And I think that's what to me when this movie, there's always a point. I'm sure we're all there where there's a point where the movie like kind of clicks for you where you're like, oh, sometimes it's the first shot. I literally remember. I, and I referenced it already, but I remember No Country for Old Men, the first shot of the movie. I don't remember what it is now, but I remember being in the theater and going, oh, okay, I'm in. Like, it was just like a perfect first shot. There's a few, Blue Ruins, another one. But there, this movie, the minute it got to the scene where, and this is, again, mature, but um, the nurse fucks the anatomic doll. Like, they, they she mm, yep. brings it to the table and then has sex with it. And I was like, what is this movie like? And then obviously that frames <laughs> part of you know the the boy's trouble and the understanding of pin and all that kind of stuff because he's hiding in the room and he sees it. But that was such a like uh, you know we're going from a three to a just an eleven. Uh, one quick crank, this movie is just gonna like really be a lot more intense. And but I thought again never would have seen that coming in a million years. Like, ah, oh, maybe she'll like clean the doll or something, but that just, okay. I don't know what the hell's going on now. I'm in. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, and then you get into stuff like, for example, Terry O'Quinn performs his own daughter's abortion. Like it yeah. just gets like, it makes the brother watch like, sorry, or, what is sorry, asks him to watch. She's like, do you want to watch? Yeah. yeah. It's uh pretty intense. So here's, here's the other thing is that Sandor Stern was a trained medical doctor. So a lot of the stuff that you're seeing, it's, I love stories about people who had these like other, like legitimate professions like Ken Jeong, who were like, yeah, I was a practicing medical doctor and here's the thing, but my artistic career just got in the way and I had to go do that. And you're just like, okay. But I feel like that sort of clinicalness and sterility really does come into the film. And I think this is a very much a movie that could be played for the... it doesn't quite go into exploitation. It could very easily be an exploitation movie, but it it doesn't go that way. And I think that's what makes it so special is that it's just so withdrawn, like every other character is withdrawn, yeah. that you just don't know what to do with it. Well, it's it. so waspy too, right? Like everything is so yeah. like, mm-hmm. we don't talk about anything, we don't do anything. But then it's the juxtaposition with the, do you want to watch your sister's abortion? Which that to me was what fascinated me because I've seen waspy families and I've seen, yeah, hey, you want to watch your sister do stuff. We've all seen those movies, but I haven't seen yeah. the the waspy father who will never hug his son compared and then also like, hey, watch this really horrific medical procedure. It would have in other movies, it would have been like, no, no, tut, tut, you don't watch this stuff. And it felt like a really authentic, if not completely fucked up view of a family. Like early on, the mother just slaps the hell of the boy because he says something or does something like that. And obviously, like it affects him. And that felt compared to what she was slapping it for, which I can't remember the context of it, but it just felt so sadly true to be like, yeah, I could see like a really you know, tight-laced family and this young boy asking questions or whatever and just getting slapped the hell out of. And it just, it was sad. It was, again, unsettling. Yeah. Well, this is very much a movie, as many movies are in 1988, as we are discussing, reactionary to the Reagan era. So we are coming to the end of the Reagan era. 1989 is his last year of service. But at this point, you are seeing basically a bunch of Hollywood movies. Earlier movies were very much praising this, like, time before. Movies like Back to the Future, right? Feed into that Reagan era of, like, let's, let's really appreciate what came before us in the simpler time and all that. By the time you reach 1998, the bloom is off, or the, yeah, 19, 1988, the bloom is off the rose. Everybody is really making these movies about, like, the time before wasn't that great. Like, here's all the stuff that was really gross and that we weren't uh, we weren't addressing and we weren't talking about. So there's another movie this year that I highly recommend that we considered pairing here that works great called Parents, uh, directed by Bob Balaban, also a Canadian film, cannot recommend it enough, that is uh, very much set in the suburbs to Waspy Parents who are cannibals and the uh, the son 
been kind of kind of coming to terms with this. And he walks in on them and like it could be that he saw them having sex when in fact he saw them eating humans. Yeah. So it's there's that same kind of psychological thing going on. It's it's really interesting. There's another Canadian and all these Canadian movies. There's another Canadian movie called American Gothic, which is also, you know, fucked up families uh, that stars Janet Wright from Corner Gas as like an infantile woman. And it's got Yvonne DiCarlo and like that one's wild. All of these are very much this reaction to the perfect nuclear family, the time before. We're going to throw that on its head and make it as twisted as possible because that's what was being shoved down your throat everywhere else with the Reagan era, right? Yeah, totally. You know, Becky, you're kind of saying like, these Canadian filmmakers made really weird films. And I feel like we think of Canadians being so like nice and so sweet, but there's this darkness lurking underneath everything, you know? And as this- someone who has been encyclopedically watching Canadian films since 2000, I can tell you, <laughs> this, is, yeah. this is what we do. And part of it is just to stand out in the market, right? If your stuff isn't genuinely weird and things other people haven't seen before, you know, in terms of these exploitation movies, I mean, that's why Cronenberg's as big as he is, right? Mm-hmm. He was making stuff that no one has seen before. We just about banned him from our own country. We just about got rid of Ivan Reitman and Don Carmody, like these mega producers, because we couldn't handle shivers. Like, this is what Canadians do. It's so true. And it's so interesting juxtaposed to the previous movie. And I think that's probably what kind of felt inauthentic to a degree about that is like you had that family where it's like everyone loves each other. The father is the most loving guy in the world, which frankly I loved because I, as a father myself to a boy, I, I prefer more positive, uh, you know, because these movies always have that cliche, <laughs> oh, you know, I hate the kid. Uh, but I think that, you know, compared to that previous one, too, this family is so much the opposite. You know, it's very, very, they don't say anything. They don't talk about their feelings. They hit their kids. It just, it felt like a good pairing is all. Yeah. No, yeah. Th- thank you. We, we worked on that. Yeah. <laughs> there was a thought process here. With, very intentional with and well done. Good job. Yes, yes, now, yes. Is, here's a big question for you guys. Is this a movie you would ever want to see remade? Yes. No. Okay. Interesting. Why and why? Let's Harlan. Let's start with you. I'm going to go broader because I have a very different view of remix. Because to me, I love remix. I love to see new directors take on material because, and this is just my view. I don't feel like they ruin the original. I think the original still exists, and I love like. I, and it's funny you mentioned the Amityville Horror. I really love the remake with Ryan Reynolds. I I think tonally there's certain aspects of that I prefer than the original. You know what I mean? And we talked about. Um, before this atmosphere, you know, we talked about how I really enjoy quiet atmosphere. And I find if there was one sort of feeling that I had during both these movies is I wish there was just less music in both of them, like especially Lady in White. I don't think there's a second in that movie uh, that there's, you know, there's no like music, uh, which is funny because Frank uh, also produced the music or, you know, did the music and stuff like that, the arranging, I think. So that was really interesting. But when it comes to Pin, same thing, you know, there's there's constant that kind of 80s synth and stuff like that too. And I find quieter moments uh, get really elevated and, you know, remakes when they're viewed in a different way, you know, especially now, things like that kind of get more attention at times. There are definitely moments in the Amityville Horror remake that are quieter than they were in the original. And I think Pin is always going to stay Pin for me. I I genuinely love this movie. I'm going to show it to other people. But if someone else took a crack at it and, you know, nine times out of 10, it's going to be a worse movie. And that's great. Cool. Forget about that. Maybe it brings people back to the original. But if it ends up doing something different or unique or special, then hell yeah, we just gave a new generation an opportunity to, to show something that we hadn't seen before. So I'm a big, I'm a big supporter of remakes because I'm always like, fuck yeah, let's, let's make more cool shit, you know? And yeah, make more creation, less destruction. And I also think that like sometimes there's underlying things that like say in 1936 we didn't talk about or we didn't totally understand that now we bring kind of that that thematically a little more to the forefront. Sometimes a little more outre than I think it needs to be that sometimes yeah. the subtlety of that is like, I mean, the Hayes Code gave us a bunch of one-liners and double entendres that we never would have had had it existed. But yeah, sometimes it brings that stuff oh, a little 100%. more to the forefront with our understanding. It's really funny because we, we always do double features in my house and we watched Lady in White. Uh, which is 88, 88. And then right after we watched Robocop, which is like 89 uh, and Robocop, amazing movie, obviously, but that also got remade. And when it was remade, uh, I, you know, I was like, sure, what the hell, let's watch it. And it sucks, but the, the original still was there. And if anything, it made me want to watch the original even more, you know? So yeah, I'm a big yeah, supporter. True. Of it. true. I don't know. Okay. My thought is this. I worry that what works so well in pin 1988 
uh, is the the production design, the the design of pin. And so good. like I read that on the three million dollar budget, they spent like seven hundred thousand dollars on pin himself, which all the money's on the screen. I love it. He is so scary and creepy. It's why I ran out of the room see just seeing his face on TV. Like, but I just worry today that they would not do practical and they would make pin CG. And that is my worry that the, there'd the, be more. Is it in his head or is it real or is it like yes. you'd see Ken walk and things like that? Yes. Like you'd see what he's seeing. Yes. And also, I I think this is the same year Child's Play is released, right? So yeah. this is like the start of like the creepy doll really getting into the pop culture, um, the zeitgeist uh, in a in a bigger way. And now we've got Chucky, we've got Megan. I feel like the the it would be hard not to make Pin do more things and not like be a, a t- more talky, more interacting with people. And and that's my worry. That's my worry. But if somebody really took it, like I'm sure somebody like an Ari Aster or something could really have the time with Pin. So maybe if the right filmmaker found it, I just think to me, this is such a perfect movie as is. So I, I, I but I, I, I appreciate your perspective, Harlan, and that you like have faith that, Filmmakers can make things even better or open your eyes to different parts of stories. Well, and and to be clear, like my gut says exactly what you're saying. Like I do not think in any way you're wrong, but my heart says, but you know what? Maybe we'll get the thing or the fly or uh even True. Suspiria, you know, like there yeah. there are there are movies that when the right person touches them, and like like I said, it's probably a one in ten chance. But who knows? Like I would I would happily take that chance every time to get a movie that just blows me out of the water. Because, you know, and I'm a big, again, Suspiria, not a lot of people agree, but like when it came to a lot of these remakes, some of them I really prefer almost. They they just kind of, I even, you know, I I even liked the Evil Dead remake. Like uh, at the time, I remember watching it and being like, this is okay. But yeah, but after after rewatching it, you know, once once the expectation is down, you're kind of like, oh, this is fucking fun movie you know like (laughs) you never know tongue splits for everybody all right the reason why i bring this up is that this was on the slate to be remade by sandor stern and andrew niederman they were going to actually remake this when they were doing the big uh reboot boom in the like late 2000s which we've talked about previously on the podcast actually got it was it was being funded they were figuring it out it got tanked by a fan so there was a super fan who was also a filmmaker and a writer. I will not use his name. You can look him up if you want to look him up. Uh, he he does have a lot of like direct-to-video kind of films and things like that. He got in touch with them and he found out this was happening. He said, I'm a, I am a super fan. I have actually written my own script version of this and uh, I would love you to have a look at it. And they had a look at it and they absolutely hated it. And they said, sorry, we're just not interested in working with you, but thank you very much for your time. As they were looking for funding, they found out this guy was shopping it around without rights behind their back Ooh. saying that he had authorization to do so. So everyone, there was just too much confusion of what was going on, and the whole thing just ended up getting shut down. So that's what happened. The script is available to read online. I got through about half of it. Um, what he does differently, and I don't want to say if it's good or bad because different people will like different things, but um, he definitely, uh, the subtlety is not the route he is going for. There is is significantly more delving into the sexual aspects of it. It is much more graphic in that direction. Um, there's more of a, a preternatural gravitation towards uh, the violent aspect of sex. So that is uh, that is very much what that script that was written was that is available on the internet to read if people would like. But it is one of those things of like, what are people reacting to in this movie that they would want to bring out and see more of, right? Yeah. I've just never heard of a fan doing that or that it's happening with a fan before. Yeah, it's no. just like, wow. Wow. Very yeah, cool. that's that. Is that Leon? Is Leon the name of the guy that wrote the script? <laughs> <laughs> it's his own life story. Need more of my well, sister in he, here. <laughs> yeah, he wrote that weird poem. That part is so oh, weird. I love that part. Poetry's creepy, man. Yeah. Poetry's just creepy but, in general. But what was Anytime so you have terrifying a, a, about it was the I loved how excited he was. That's what. But like, like so ignorant to 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 what he's saying like and that again going back to david hewlett was like what made this movie for me is that like every fucked up thing that he was doing he he did with such genuine innocent joy you know that it just made it so like you know when every time he was like let's ask pin you know 
it was it was something that you could switch pin out for a real person and it would have sold it a hundred percent because it just felt so authentic that this like grown man was like, well, let's ask this doll what he thinks. Oh, it was so good the way he sold that. Uh, the voice of Pin, we should say, too, is Jonathan Banks, who's Mike from Breaking Bad. So it's actually oh, not, uh, yeah, it's not Terry O'Quinn doing the voice. Terry O'Quinn also is fresh off the stepfather. Like, this is the yep. year after the stepfather. So he would have been, already been in people's minds of, like, what's he going to do? Because another one of my favorite movies. Because he has that total quiet calm that could go in any direction at any time. That pin, but it's not him. He's not the bad well, guy. that Pin <laughs> voice, actually, and we should also say is really good. And the final connection to the changeling. Because the little boy, when he's like... You know, I murdered Johnny. Remember, remind me of Pin a little bit because he's got this kind of like falsetto, like, hello, everything's fine. You know, made me feel <laughs> connections because I, again, from the changing, that haunting like call from the top of the stairs always stuck mm-hmm. to my mind when he's like, I was murdered and stuff like that. So I think there's the connection oh. too. But no, really good movie. I really, really liked it. I think that's the perfect place to end this episode. So, uh, Emily Gagne, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Becky. It's always a joy to talk about kinder trauma with you. (laughs) (laughs) Harlan Guthrie, thank you for joining us for the very first time. It was an absolute pleasure. Pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much for having me. I'll come back anytime. This was a blast. Please tell people how they can hear more of your work. Like I said, I'm a huge fan of Malevolent. If you like horror, it's like, I hate using Lovecraftian, but it's Lovecraftian-inspired horror. Eldritch, you know, know what I mean. Eldritch, that's a better word. Yeah, I like all the... Uh, stuff that the unknown horror but yeah you can check me out at malevolent.ca you could follow twitter malevolent cast at malevolent cast i also have a new sci-fi horror coming out may 1st it's called divisor it's a seven-part limited series it all drops at the same time also done all by me uh dealing with sort of the horrors of ai mid-journey stuff right now i'm really excited about you can check that out at divisor.ca as well so malevolent and divisor Awesome. Thank you. And you can join us in two weeks where if things weren't weird enough for you this week, it's going to get even weirder because we're going to be joined by the fabulous Will Sloan and looking at some horror with pornographic roots. It's Prime Evil and Sorority Babes in the Slime Ball Bolarama. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton. Senior producer is Becky Shrimpton, and co-producers are Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Emily Gagné and Harlan Guthrie as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagné. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. <laughs>